Hello, and welcome to this PrimeMed podcast entitled Acute Rhinosinusitis. When is it okay to use antibiotics? I'm Dr. Danielle Hebert, and I'm an adult nurse practitioner in primary care, as well as an assistant professor and coordinator of the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Track in the Tan Chin Fen Graduate School of Nursing at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. While this episode is relevant to all primary care clinicians, it's part of a curriculum I've developed with PrimeMed and designed specifically to help nurse practitioners earn the pharmacology credits they need to maintain their licensure. Check out the other courses within the curriculum at www.primed.com forward slash Hebert. Thank you for joining me as we dive into the current recommendations for acute bacterial rhinosinusitis to determine if and when antibiotics may be indicated. As clinicians, it's important we remain stewards of antibiotic stewardship to prevent overusage of antibiotics and promotion of bacterial resistance. We'll begin with a brief review of the diagnosis of these conditions and incorporate current evidence and guidelines throughout the case studies to address common patient scenarios in primary care. It seems like most of our patients are on the hamster wheel and they can't slow down to be sick, or at least it seems like that to me. Just around September, I begin to see more patients with upper respiratory infection symptoms requesting an antibiotic, often citing this reason. The after-effects of the COVID-19 pandemic are still present as well, with many being afraid of becoming ill or hospitalized if they do not have an antibiotic just in case. The two guidelines available to us for management of adult acute bacterial rhinosinusitis date back to 2012 for the Infectious Disease Society of America, which is also abbreviated as IDSA, and 2015 for the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery. I do want to note that the guidelines from IDSA have been archived as of the recording of this podcast, and I was unable to identify when a new guideline may be released. I will also reference recommendations on antibiotic usage for sinusitis from the Choosing Wisely campaign. For our pediatric content, we will review recommendations based on the guidelines provided by the American Academy of Pediatrics, which were published in 2013. So sinusitis is one of the most common reasons for patients to be seen in the United States. It accounts for more than 3 million visits annually and is one of the most common reason for antibiotics to be prescribed. It accounts for between five and $11 billion in healthcare costs, and about one of every eight adults is affected in the United States, with between 75% to 80% receiving antibiotics, which accounts for about 15 to 20% of total adult antibiotics prescribed. Despite all this, only about one-third of those cases will be bacterial. Because of the common symptoms that can be seen in rhinosinusitis and other upper respiratory infections, it can be difficult to make the diagnosis. Hopefully, you will feel better prepared following this review. The American Association of Otolaryngology 
head and neck surgery, defines rhinosinusitis as symptomatic inflammation of the paranasal sinuses and cavity. They also define uncomplicated rhinosinusitis as rhinosinusitis without clinically evident extension of inflammation outside the paranasal sinuses and nasal cavity at the time of diagnosis, or meaning no neurologic, ophthalmologic, or soft tissue involvement is noted. Reviewing the available research and guidelines, the consensus appears that acute rhinosinusitis is defined as lasting less than four to six weeks. Some literature extended this definition up to 12 weeks, while others identified the time frame of four to 12 weeks as subacute rhinosinusitis. Chronic rhinosinusitis is defined as lasting more than 12 weeks, with or without exacerbations, and recurrent acute rhinosinusitis is the presence of four or more annual episodes of rhinosinusitis without persistent symptoms in between episodes. Before we dive into our cases, I want to point out some terminology differences between the adult and pediatric guidelines so there is no confusion. The adult guidelines refer to this diagnosis as acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, or abbreviated as ABRS, while the pediatric guidelines refer to it as acute bacterial sinusitis, which is abbreviated as ABS. So we're going to meet Tom. Tom's a 19-year-old cisgender male who is a freshman at the local college. He is a member of the football team, and he works at the local grocery store on the weekends as a cashier. His mom scheduled an appointment for him because he's missed some classes and he needs a note to return to school. On review of his chart, we see that he is healthy and up-to-date on vaccinations, including the COVID-19 booster. He has had recent cold symptoms with rhinorrhea, postnasal drip, sore throat, ear pain, and now sinus pain. He states his first symptom was a sore throat that started eight days ago, but only lasted for two days. This was then followed by rhinorrhea, postnasal drip, and bilateral ear pain. About three days ago, he felt like he was getting better because the right ear pain had resolved. But then he started to feel worse because the pain in the left ear is still there, and now he has some pain in his upper teeth bilaterally when he's eating. He didn't feel like he had a fever in the beginning, but for the past three days, he feels like he may have one, as he's had sweats and chills, which prompted him to go home for the weekend. The sinus pressure started two days ago and is located above his left eye, and he feels like it's throbbing and it only minimally responds to acetaminophen, which he has been taking 1,000 milligrams every eight hours for the past two days. He has tested for COVID at school twice, and both were negative. So this does sound like your typical presentation of an upper respiratory infection, but there are some important symptoms that suggest that bacteria may be present. If we refer back to our guidelines, the American Association of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery recommends providers make a diagnosis of a presumed ABRS 
when there are symptoms or signs of acute rhinosinusitis, which includes one, purulent nasal drainage accompanied by nasal obstruction, or two, facial pain, pressure, or fullness, or three, the presence of both one and two that persist without evidence of improvement for at least 10 days beyond the onset of upper respiratory symptoms, or if there are symptoms or signs of acute rhinosinusitis that worsen within 10 days after an initial improvement, which is referred to as a double worsening. A review of the available literature revealed a meta-analysis from 2019 in which findings of cacosmia, which is a foul odor of the breath, and teeth pain seem to correlate more with a bacterial infection when confirmatory bacterial culture testing of the purulent antral puncture fluid was completed. Now, if we apply all of this to Tom, he meets criteria two for having an acute bacterial rhinosinusitis in that he is reporting facial pain and pressure. He does not meet the criteria of having symptoms without improvement 10 days past the onset, but he does meet criteria of worsening symptoms after an initial improvement or double worsening. On physical exam, we see he has a low-grade temp of 99.9 Fahrenheit oral in the office with the most recent dose of acetaminophen about two hours ago. His nasal passages are noted to be erythematous with purulent nasal discharge on the left. His left tympanic membrane shows pearly effusion, but no erythema or injection. And his posterior pharynx has some purulent postnasal drip and mild erythema, but his tonsils and uvula are normal. He has tenderness to percussion of the left frontal and maxillary sinuses, but no swelling or erythema is noted in the periorbital space. He has mild left cervical lymphadenopathy, and his cardiac and respiratory exams are normal. Now, based with this, do we have enough information to make a clinical diagnosis of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis? Do you think this is something that we need to obtain imaging or lab work to confirm? When considering a diagnosis of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis, the American Association of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery does not recommend imaging for patients who meet diagnostic criteria. We have to remember that this is primarily a clinical diagnosis and that imaging cannot help us to determine between viral and bacterial infection. Use of imaging for Tom would not aid in our diagnosis, nor would it change our treatment plan. It will, however, expose him to unnecessary radiation. If Tom had a different presentation than noted, so say he had swelling and erythema around the left eye, I would be concerned he may have developed a complication like periorbital cellulitis, since 60 to 80% of complications with acute bacterial rhinosinusitis occur in the orbital region. In this presentation, my plan would include imaging with a gadolinium-based MRI, which is considered to be the gold standard, but we do know these can sometimes be difficult to obtain, which does make an iodine contrast-enhanced CT an acceptable alternative if that is what you are able to schedule. 
Now, the same thought can be applied to the use of lab work in the presentation of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis. Since it is a clinical diagnosis, labs are usually not indicated and would only be ordered if I was suspicious of a complication or of an alternative diagnosis. I would feel comfortable at this point to diagnose Tom with acute bacterial rhinosinusitis and start him on an antibiotic. Both the American Association of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery and the Infectious Disease Society of America recommend the use of amoxicillin with or without clavulinate as first-line treatment for a period of 5 to 10 days. Before selecting treatment between these two options, I would identify any allergies in addition to any factors that would place him at risk for resistance, such as any recent antibiotic use within the past three months, any recent hospitalizations, or any recent exposure or work with children under the age of two or daycare employment. In the absence of these factors, I would opt to go with amoxicillin 500 milligrams orally three times a day. However, if any factors for resistance were present or Tom had comorbidities, I would treat him with amoxicillin clavulinate 500 milligrams slash 125 milligrams three times per day, or an alternative would be 875 milligrams slash 125 milligrams two times a day, with the latter actually being my preferred because it does provide ease of dosing for the patient. It's good to remember that amoxicillin does offer narrow spectrum coverage with good safety, efficacy, and is also low cost to the patient. In the presence of a penicillin allergy that caused anaphylaxis, we could treat with doxycycline or one of the respiratory fluoroquinolones such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. However, doxycycline is the preferred alternative treatment as it also provides a narrow spectrum of coverage and has fewer adverse effects than the fluoroquinolones, which tend to be reserved for those patients who have a penicillin allergy and whom did not improve with the use of doxycycline. Given Tom's active lifestyle as a football player, I would be hesitant to use fluoroquinolones due to their risk of causing musculoskeletal effects of pain, swelling, and possible tendon rupture. So I have selected to start Tom on amoxicillin 500 milligrams three times a day. With the use of the antibiotic, I would anticipate that Tom will start to feel better within 72 hours. I would advise for him to continue use of the acetaminophen and that he could alternate it with over-the-counter anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen to help to control the discomfort and his fever. I would also discuss the use of an intranasal steroid such as mometazone, fluticasone, flunicilide, or budesonide as these can help with the nasal congestion and his facial discomfort. I would advise against the use of a nasal decongestant, such as the over-the-counter Afrin, because this is known to cause rebound congestion when used for more than the recommended three to five days. Recently, an FDA advisory panel unanimously voted and recommended that the over-the-counter decongestant phenylephrine is ineffective and should be considered a placebo.
I would make sure that Tom understood this new information as the ingredient is still part of many cold remedies available until the FDA makes a final decision and recommendation. The last part of patient education I would provide for Tom is to monitor for improvement. And if he does not feel that he's getting better within 72 hours, that he does need to be seen again in case the antibiotic needs to be changed. Given that I started him with amoxicillin 500 milligrams three times a day, he may need to be switched to amoxicillin clavulinate in case of resistance. Now we're going to review a pediatric case. Mrs. Trank has brought seven-year-old Susie in for cold symptoms that started five days ago. She reports Susie has had a runny nose, a barking cough at night, and says that her ears hurt. Mrs. Trank voices concern as everyone in the family has been sick, including her husband and Susie's older brother, Nick, who is nine. She reports her husband traveled and came home sick two weeks ago and was recently started on an antibiotic for walking pneumonia. Nick has the same symptoms as Susie, but he seems to be getting better. The chart review tells us that Susie is a healthy seven-year-old, being seen annually for her physical and an occasional appointment for sore throat or ear pain. She is noted to be up to date on all her vaccinations. Mrs. Trank reports she's been given Susie a cough suppressant with honey at night as the cough sounds barky and is keeping Susie from sleeping. During the day, she has been giving her acetaminophen for the ear pain, which has been helping. Susie has been able to go to school, and they have required COVID-19 testing, which has been negative at home. Susie has been able to go to school, and they have required COVID-19 testing, which has been negative at home for the past two days. She is eating less, but is drinking more water than usual. She has not noticed any nausea vomiting, or diarrhea, and Susie appears to be urinating the same. So looking at all the information, Susie definitely appears to have risk factors for exposure, given her dad's walking pneumonia and her brother's similar presentation, but thankfully he is getting better. According to the research, estimates assume that approximately 10% of children have at least one case of acute bacterial sinusitis by the age of three, and that about seven and a half percent of upper respiratory infections will become acute bacterial sinusitis. For the purposes of a definition, acute bacterial sinusitis for the pediatric population is defined as a presentation of persistent symptoms of an upper respiratory infection with cough and nasal congestion or discharge lasting more than 10 days without improvement. A caveat to the definition is that the cough must be present in the daytime. While the cough may also be present additionally at night, a cough that is exclusively presenting at night is more often due to irritation from postnasal drip or a reactive airway disease. Additionally, acute bacterial sinusitis can be considered in a child that has a more severe presentation at onset including a temperature that is greater than 102.2 Fahrenheit and nasal discharge that is purulent for three consecutive days. And similar to adults, the pediatric population could experience double worsening 
and that the child will have symptoms of an upper respiratory infection that begins to improve over the course of a couple of days, but then the symptoms deteriorate and there's worsening of the nasal congestion or discharge or the daytime cough, with possibly both of these things being worse as well. The child may also go on to develop a new fever too. And similar to adults, imaging would not be indicated to confirm the diagnosis. But if there was a concern for a complication, then a contrast-enhanced CT scan or MRI with contrast would be indicated. For this population, depending on the age of the patient, a CAT scan may be easier to obtain, but both should be considered if the child is not responding appropriately to treatment for acute bacterial sinusitis. Now, just a quick discussion on the risk of complications in this population. Rates of complications do occur more in children who are from a lower socioeconomic status or who have limited access to healthcare. The most common location of complications for children will occur in the frontal or ethmoid sinuses, with orbital complications being the most common, such as preceptal or periorbital cellulitis. When evaluating the child, it's important to keep these factors in the back of your mind, especially if the child has an atypical presentation of acute bacterial sinusitis with periorbital pain, swelling, erythema, or proptosis. So we do Susie's exam and we find that she's afebrile. She has clear TMs, nasal passages are congested with erythema, and there's clear nasal discharge. There's some slight erythema of the posterior pharynx. She has no cervical lymphadenopathy and normal respiratory and cardiovascular exams. And during our visit, she does not appear to be in any distress. Based on the history and presentation, I would diagnose this as an upper respiratory infection caused by a virus. I would recommend that Mrs. Trank continue with the use of the cough suppressant with honey at night and the acetaminophen as needed for ear pain. Since she has only had symptoms for five days, it is most likely that Susie has a viral infection that will clear on its own. Therefore, antibiotics would not be indicated for this patient. For patients or parents who insist on needing antibiotics, here is how I approach the conversation. First, I find it's important to acknowledge their concern and request, and I respond with empathy, often stating, I hear you and I understand where you're coming from. This shows that I am listening and that I get it. They're worried. Then I go over a detailed patient plan as to what steps we'll take if things don't improve over the next week or whatever time frame that's indicated. I make sure that they understand and that they can repeat back to me the things they need to monitor for that would indicate things are worsening or when they might need to seek immediate medical attention. I also go over the different means of communication that they can use to reach me or my team, whether it be by phone or a patient portal message. One of the things I do consider as I develop their plan is the things that could impact my patient being able to access me or my team. And these are things such as holidays or long weekends. In these instances, if I know the patient and I have a rapport with them, 
I will provide a post-dated prescription if the holiday or long weekend intersects with the time frame that would indicate antibiotic usage so that they know they don't have to go through an urgent care or an on-call provider if they're not improving. Now let's look at the case again with Susie, but let's add some different history. Let's say Susie has the same upper respiratory symptoms, but has had a fever of 102.2 over the course of the first few days of those symptoms. Let's also say that Susie has an incomplete vaccination history, having not received her Haemophilus influenza type B or Hib, or her 13-valent pneumococcal conjugate vaccine due to parental preference. We know that these two vaccines have decreased the rate of acute bacterial sinusitis due to Haemophilus influenza and strep pneumoniae, but since Susie has not received them, she is at risk for these infections. Following the American Academy of Pediatrics guideline, Susie would be an appropriate candidate for high-dose amoxicillin clavulinate, with the amoxicillin dose being 90 milligrams per kilogram per day orally, and the clavulinate dosing being 6.4 milligram per kilogram per day. And this would be given in two divided doses up to a maximum of two grams per dose. If she were to have a penicillin allergy without an anaphylaxis reaction, then we could prescribe cefpodoxine, ceftonir, or cefuroxine. If her penicillin allergy included an anaphylaxis reaction, then our options would include combo therapy of clindamycin and cefixum or fluoroquinolone with caution due to its adverse effects. Following the American Academy of Pediatrics, the length of treatment for children is recommended to continue antibiotic treatment for seven days after resolution, but the exact time frame is not specified, whereas IDSA recommends a time frame of 10 to 14 days. Let's now review a case for our older population. Our patient, Mrs. Smith, is a 69-year-old female who we are seeing for cold symptoms that had been present for seven days. She has a medical history of hypertension for which she is taking lisinopril and hydrochlorothiazide and is otherwise healthy. She is retired, but she cares for her three grandchildren who are ages two, seven, and 11, and she sees them three days a week. She is also a volunteer at the local senior center where she provides transportation to medical appointments for those who are unable to drive themselves. Mrs. Smith is reporting that she's had a runny nose, sore throat, and cough for most of seven days. She reports a feeling of needing to clear her throat frequently because of post-nasal trip. She denies fever, ear pain, sinus pain or pressure, nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. She has taken one or two doses of coracetin, but reports it really didn't help. Her appetite has been decreased, but she is still eating three meals per day. She has tested once for COVID-19, and it was negative, and she reports she's wearing a mask whenever she has someone in the car with her. She feels like her symptoms have hit a plateau, and she was going to wait a while longer, but her daughter's concerned and wanted her to be seen. 
So looking at all this, Miss Smith is quite an active woman despite being retired. On description of her symptoms, it sounds like this may be an upper respiratory infection, but let's review things a little deeper to see if there's any concerning factors we should consider. Given her age, which is over 65, her history of hypertension and her exposure to her two-year-old grandchild, she does have risk factors for a resistant infection. However, she has not had a fever, her symptoms are not worsening, and the time frame has been less than 10 days, so this does not give the immediate impression of an acute bacterial rhinosinusitis. For her exam, we find that she's afebrile, her TMs are pearly with effusion, nasal passages are congested with erythema and nasal discharge that is light yellow to green in color. She has no pain to sinus percussion, and her posterior pharynx shows some cobblestoning with postnasal drip. The remainder of the exam is normal. It is important to note that the color of nasal discharge is not specific to bacterial infection over viral infection, and some patients may need education on this, as it is a common myth. So while Mrs. Smith may be at increased risk of a resistant infection, her presentation does not indicate a need for antibiotics. I would be comfortable to utilize the watchful waiting approach for her. Watchful waiting is something that can be utilized for a period up to seven days as long as there's follow-up scheduled. And this follow-up can be an office visit, a phone call, or a telehealth visit. Since Mrs. Smith's symptoms have hit a plateau and she's had them for seven days, it is possible she may need another seven days to clear the virus on her own, as some infections do need this length of time, or she may gradually worsen, or the symptoms may not resolve on their own. If either of these things do occur, then she would become a candidate for an antibiotic. Given the risk of resistance for her, I would opt to treat with amoxicillin clavulinate 500 milligrams slash 125 milligrams three times daily for seven days and would follow up to see how she's doing in case she needs an additional three days of treatment. An important factor for this antibiotic in this patient is her creatinine clearance. Utilizing the dose I selected would be okay as long as her creatinine clearance is more than 10 milliliters per minute. If her creatinine clearance was less than this, then I would decrease her dose frequency to daily. And it is important to note that amoxicillin clavulinate, instant release or extended release, 875 milligram tablets should be avoided altogether if the creatinine clearance is less than 30 milliliters a minute. For this case, we're gonna meet Mr. N. Mr. N is a 69-year-old male with a history of hypertension and diabetes. His social history includes a 30-pack year history, and he continues to smoke a half pack per day. He is retired, but helps to babysit his two grandkids, ages three and five. He was seen at the local urgent care four days ago for an upper respiratory infection that has been present for almost two weeks at this point. He was started on amoxicillin clavulinate 875 milligram slash 125 milligrams twice daily after his visit, but reports he's not felt any improvement in his symptoms. 
He has been using his neti pot for nasal saline irrigation and his intranasal fluticasone, but continues to have thick purulent nasal discharge and pain in the left maxillary sinus, as well as pain in his teeth. He feels like he may still have a fever, but he hasn't checked his temperature. So what would you want to do in this situation? Do you think you would want to keep him on the current antibiotic, or do you think we need to change his treatment plan? At this point, Mr. N may be experiencing treatment failure, which is defined as a lack of improvement within three to five days of diagnosis or if symptoms should worsen. This could possibly be due to his age, smoking history, and exposure to his grandkids, all of which can increase his risk of resistance. Once we identify that Mr. N does not have any medication allergies, we could consider our alternative treatment options, which include doxycycline, a possible respiratory fluoroquinolone such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin, or clindamycin with a third-generation cephalosporin such as cefpodoxine. Given the risk associated with fluoroquinolones, such as tendinopathy and tendon rupture, I would lean towards the use of doxycycline, as this would offer him monotherapy with an easier regimen since it is taken twice daily. I would still provide the same patient education to monitor for any worsening of symptoms with the expectations that he should feel better within the next 48 to 72 hours. If things are not improving, he should return for a reevaluation. Now, before we go, I'd like to review some key takeaways from today's session. Our first takeaway is that the commonly referenced guidelines include the Infectious Disease Society from 2012, which have been archived without a new version available at this time, and the American Academy of Otolaryngology Head and Neck Surgery Guidelines from 2015. Our second takeaway is that we can make a presumed diagnosis of ABRS when there are symptoms or signs of acute rhinosinusitis, which includes one, purulent nasal drainage accompanied by nasal obstruction, or two, facial pain, pressure, or fullness, or perhaps the presence of both one and two that persist without evidence of improvement for at least 10 days beyond the onset of upper respiratory symptoms, or if there are symptoms or signs of acute rhinosinusitis that worsen within 10 days after an initial improvement, which as I mentioned previously is referred to as double worsening. The third takeaway is that appropriate treatment for adults would include amoxicillin 500 milligrams three times a day or amoxicillin clavulinate 500 milligrams slash 125 milligrams three times a day or our third option being dosing of 875 milligrams slash 125 milligrams twice a day. And these are all considered first-line treatment for a period of five to 10 days. If our patient has a penicillin allergy that caused anaphylaxis, then we can treat with doxycycline or one of the respiratory fluoroquinolones, such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. And again, just remember that doxycycline is the preferred alternative treatment. The fourth takeaway is that the criteria for acute bacterial sinusitis in the pediatric population 
includes a presentation of persistent symptoms of an upper respiratory infection with the presence of cough and nasal congestion or discharge that lasts more than 10 days without improvement. A caveat for that definition is that the cough must be present in the daytime. Our next takeaway is that with the American Academy of Pediatrics, the first-line treatment for pediatric population does include amoxicillin at a dose of 45 milligrams per kilogram per day in two divided doses, or the high-dose amoxicillin-clavulinate combination for those that have a high risk for resistance. And again, that dosing is amoxicillin 90 milligrams per kilogram per day orally and the clavulinate is 6.4 milligrams per kilogram per day. And again, this would be in two divided doses up to a max of two grams per dose. If our patient should have a penicillin allergy without an anaphylaxis reaction, then we could prescribe cefpodoxime, ceftonir, or cefuroxime. And if our patient should have a penicillin allergy with an anaphylaxis reaction, our option would include combo therapy of clindamycin and cefexime or a fluoroquinolone. But again, remember this is with caution due to its adverse effects. It is important to note that there's discrepancy in the recommended length of treatment for children and that the American Academy of Pediatrics does recommend antibiotics be extended for seven days past resolution of their symptoms but the exact time frame is not specified. And then our IDSA recommendations are for a time frame of 10 to 14 days. The next takeaway is about the importance of not missing signs and symptoms of complications such as periorbital cellulitis. And if we do suspect these, that we need to refer them to the emergency department for a prompt evaluation. For our final takeaway, imaging is not indicated for diagnosis of acute bacterial rhinosinusitis in the adult or pediatric population, but it is indicated for patients suspected of having complications or whom are not responding to treatment. That brings us to the end of our session. Thank you for joining me for this case study review on management of adult acute bacterial rhinosinusitis and pediatric acute bacterial sinusitis.